I've been surrounded by men all my life. My two brothers, my father, my cousins, uncles, friends, students, and professors. I just accepted them for who they were. It never occurred to me that they were constructed. That if they'd been born to different families in different circumstances, different cultures, different time, they would have been different. I of course know the impact of culture and child rearing. I actually have a PhD in the subject. but early on in my life it was just an intellectual understanding this is deepa narayan social science researcher and host of what's a man podcast my goal in doing this podcast is simple to open up the conversation about men and masculinity in a non-judgmental way with compassion and deep listening Thank you so much for listening to us. You have made us so successful. Over a quarter million people have listened to our episodes. So these last four episodes are special gifts from us to you. Each episode focuses on change. The first three focus on on other people and the last one focuses on me. I will reflect back and summarize my learnings from this research in hosting this series. and a new approach to feminism and generating equality between the genders engage with us subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platforms hubhopper apple spotify and now amazon prime music and tell your friends and others about us what's a man masculinity podcast in india by deepa narayan Our partners are Hubhopper, the Gender Lab, who work with adolescent boys and girls on gender awareness, Chup Circles, safe spaces for conversation, and Youth Ki Awaaz, the largest online platform for youth voices. This podcast is supported by the American Center New Delhi. The opinions presented in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the American Center or the US government. There are many men who've changed, who've changed who they are and what they do with their lives. Our guest today is Manak Matiani. He's a feminist, queer activist and the executive director of the YP Foundation in Delhi. He facilitates youth leadership for social change with a focus on gender justice and sexuality rights. He runs a program called Mardo Wali Baat Mentor, which helps young men search for their own definitions of being a good man or a better man. He's worked with many grassroots organizations and led campaigns as a trainer and facilitator. Manak, welcome. What a delight to be with you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. So I look forward to a great conversation and learning from you about your work and your life. A good place to always start is the early experiences and early influences. You have been an activist a feminist a queer activist you're doing a lot of work with men how did this all happen can you talk a bit about your early life in terms of your family your mother your father what got you thinking and ending up in this route 
I think my family uh, particularly has been uh, fairly significant in how I came about doing what I do right now. Uh, I had both parents who were in the government service. Both of them had jobs of a certain kind. And I think I must credit to my mother, who even at that time, uh, I was growing up in uh, the 90s in Delhi. At that time, even she was continuously sort of thinking and talking against like sexism inherent in many systems that were around us. Something as simple as my school, where the fees, my fees went from uh, my mother's account, but the refunds, it would go back to the father's account. And my mother would continuously have issues with that. And I think it was really uh, that kind of early influence that got me also thinking about uh, why it is like this uh, and, and what should be different. When I did my uh, post-graduation in mass communication, in fact, that led me to make a film about my mother and, and gender in the family. So tell uh, me a little bit about it. What did you portray about your mother and your father? And what kind of dialogue did that start with the family? Sure. Uh, this is me and a friend of mine, a very close friend of mine. We made this film called All About Our Mothers. It was specifically about his mother and my mother and our families, but about the kinds of choices women made uh, or navigated in that generation, in the generation of our mothers. And uh, this just the choice of working, having a family, what kinds of uh, barriers they faced, what kinds of uh, you know decisions they had to take about their own lives. And that was a really interesting process for me to hear from my mother about uh, having to give up travel of the kind uh, that she would have really wanted to do because she had a family. And she said something very interesting, that it's not like she didn't enjoy or like having a family or children. But because she had a family, she couldn't not think about the family. And it became her responsibility to be around uh, more than my father. Uh, even though my father wasn't by any means a very patriarchal person. But, you know, all of these gendered roles, expectations are automatically learned right. and ingrained. And obviously, when they came back from work, uh, my father would sit and watch TV. My mother would go and organize yeah. dinner. That would <laughs> automatically happen. Yeah. And my mother sort of decided to spoke about it. In many houses, people did not speak about it, did not reflect on it. And I think that's where I really started thinking. Right. But did your father change? Did your father's behavior change? So my father, like I said, was by no means a patriarchal person. And he definitely did his bit. He was much better than many other men, I would right, imagine, right. in families of my friends that I saw. But like I said, uh, they just had uh, different ways of being. So if you ask my father who's the head of the family, he would say, it's not me. Like we take decisions together. Your mother is maybe taking more decisions than I am. But there were some things that were just automatic. Like, you know, he wouldn't worry about what will be made for dinner. Yeah, wonderful example, because I hear that constantly, even now from women, that the emotional labor and the organizational bit is still on mostly on women's uh, shoulders. You uh, joined YP Foundation that creates safe spaces and spaces for young people to work with and think and reflect about in their social reality. I've heard you talk about that you entered queer rights through women's rights and feminism. Can you talk a bit about that? I started working actually in 2007, uh, 2006. One of the first things I did after I finished my course in mass communication was made a film on gender and safety of women in the city with this organization called Jagori. Mm -hmm. uh, and through that route, I got introduced to a lot of women's rights organizing uh, for another film that I made uh, after studying documentary filmmaking on uh, menstrual taboos. We ended up reaching uh, this autonomous women's collective called Saheli. And I think I must credit... 
my own early understanding of gender and sexuality issues and women's rights issues to uh, exposure to these kind of spaces, to Saheli, to Jaguri, to many other organizations and collectives like that. And I think from that route, when I entered eventually, uh, you know, the queer pride organizing space of queer movements uh, in Delhi, what that did for me is that it strengthened my understanding of feminism and feminist politics as a lens of analysis. I had seen it at home with my parents by just day-to-day conversation but then it became more organized like oh this is what it is and it seemed like the most natural logical way of thinking to me that there should be equality of course there should be and I think uh, the fact that I entered through women's rights made me very conscious of my own privilege as a man and uh, then in rights-based work I feel that my continuous effort is to uh, uh, you know as a man who wants to practice feminist leadership also take less space and give more space to leadership of other genders who don't have this kind of privilege, who are not automatically assumed to be leaders just by way of their gender. And I think this has been important to the way I have then come into queer rights work or uh, leading any kind of activism on that. So what does feminist leadership or feminist leadership practices for men look like? Can you describe it and how does it actually work? What have you observed and what do you try and teach young men? I often say this, I think that violence and oppression is noticed quickly. And now we are at a stage where people want to act, people want to highlight and say this is wrong. But privilege still doesn't get enough attention. Privilege still goes unnoticed. And uh, men's feminist leadership is actually in this daily consciousness of how privilege acts in my own life. So in activism and in uh, any kind of development work or social change work, I would say uh, men's feminist leadership is actually in giving up leadership to other genders, giving up leadership and actually listening to women, because what tends to happen many times, even in development circles, is that I am saying something about women's rights and automatically it's like, oh, this man is saying it so great and, you know, kudos to this person who's highlighting these important issues. But women activists have been saying the same thing for years. And they don't get the same kind of attention because, oh, oh, I mean, they've come again. And I think in daily life, it also means being conscious enough to know that when I'm walking down the road uh, at night and there is a woman walking ahead of me, perhaps the right thing for me to do is fasten my pace and go walk in front of her because she's automatically feeling that, who is this guy behind me? Am I safe or not? And so I think just being very conscious that your presence now as a man and in this kind of situation where violence against women is so rampant, that, you know, a masculine presence is automatically threatening. And that's not women's fault. That's actually the fault of the men who are violent. And taking responsibility for that is the other part. Is it difficult to persuade men to give up privilege? Why would anyone want to give up privilege? At some point of time, we run a lot of programs at the YP Foundation on sexual and reproductive health uh, and rights awareness. And so comprehensive sexuality education. We, uh, so at some point of time, we realized that we are trying to tell all these boys that you, uh, you know, when we try and teach consent, we are trying to tell all of these boys that, you know, don't pressure your girlfriends or your, you know, women friends into physical relationships right now. And in, in return, what you will get is an equal marriage later where you will have to do also more work. And we're like, this just doesn't add up. Why would, <laughs> why would they want to do any of this? And uh, what we then That's too far is, away. Delayed yeah. gratification. Yeah. They are not interested in either of those things. They are not interested in having an equal marriage where they want to do more work. Right. They are not interested in delaying sex right now. Uh, but I think what we also realized is that this space for having conversation about how men feel 
right? Uh, because men are continuously exhorted into conversation about what they should do and not what they are feeling and expressing that feeling and really sort of dissecting it, trying to sort of understand it and stay with it. And so when you open up conversation about feeling rejected, feeling challenged, feeling conscious, uh, all of those things that men feel but are not allowed to express, I think that really opens up a lot of new ways in which conversation with men uh, around these issues can be had. And that's something that we continuously try to do. Uh, have more open uh, spaces for men to have this kind of conversation safely. So can you give some examples? When we were talking the other day, you talked about the toffee game. So it's easier for people to understand how you actually work <laughs> without preaching or pointing fingers. Sure. Uh, I think, and this is uh, not something we've developed, it's used very often, right. uh, that this simple game where, you know, we ask about 10-15 questions to people in a group. Do you live in a house of your own or a rented house? Do you have a vehicle that you have primary control over? Are you a man? Can you go out at night without feeling fear by yourself? And every time the answer is yes, you pick up a topic and you keep it. And at the end of the game, if there are 20 people, uh, the people with the most number of toffees come and stand like uh, in the front row and the people with lesser toffees stand in the rows behind them and then they try and throw their toffees to enter into one bucket that we've kept in front. You know what it does, this simple kind of a simulation for really what is life uh, shows them that uh, if you have privilege, you know, all of these things constitute privilege, ability to go out, ability to be, uh, you know, not fearful all the time, uh, all of these things constitute privilege. They automatically have them because of their gender. And because of this privilege, they are automatically standing at the front of the line and they have more chances to get their toffees into this bucket. And whoever gets the most toffees into the bucket gets control of that bucket. They are the ones who get to decide who's going to get real physical assets and resources in the world. These are the people who are making policies, who are dividing up, uh, you know, who gets what. And I think that simple simulation for uh, life really drives this point home. I think the other thing that works is that in India, particularly, uh, men and women, boys and girls at a young age are just, you know, not allowed if you go to tier two, tier three cities. In education institutions, they're still not allowed to sit and be friends with each other. It's still stigmatized. Mm -hmm. And uh, because of that, they just don't see somebody from another gender as a friend, as a human being. They only see that person as somebody who you tease, who you don't know things about, who you have curiosity about. And I think that, uh, you know, having different gender people in the same room, learning and talking to each other. That's the other important part of how uh, when different kinds of experiences, uh, when you engage with diversity, yeah. your privilege and another person's marginalization really comes up front for you. Very, very interesting. So can you talk a bit more about some of the programs you run and the kinds of questions that come up? What are the most common ideas that you have to deal with and how do you again mm -hmm. work with men uh, without shaming sure. them? I think uh, this became actually at some point of time when we were running all these curricula on sexual health and sexuality in relationships, we realized that uh, a lot of men are asking us this great question of, uh, you know, about sexual relationships. They were asking this question of how do I tell my partner is having fun? And uh, we thought it's a fantastic question. If men are concerned about their partners having fun, it's amazing. But we also realized that in organized curricula, the only answer that we have for this question is no means no. 
understand concept. <laughs> and we're like, this is such a huge gap. Like men are asking really something about their relationships, their uh, way of being partners. And we don't have an organized, we don't have an empathetic response to that. And I think that's something that we've been trying to up in the way we work with young men and boys. And we also realize that relationships and self-image is such a huge part of what constitutes men's mind, what takes up men's mind space. So many boys, even in a small program, had this uh, experience of, you know, feeling rejected, but not even rejected, feeling betrayed. Uh, that's the word they use. They had this experience of feeling betrayed by women. And they said, now this is defined. My first interaction with women, a woman has betrayed me and this now defines how I will engage with women for all time to come. And we were amazed at how like 20, 21, 18, 19 year old boys had this kind of strong sense of betrayal. And when we started, uh, you know, digging a bit deeper, we realized that uh, betrayal was a really wide and strange uh, category. Uh, this woman told me that I don't want to be your girlfriend is betrayal. This woman actually sort of after having a relationship told me I don't want to see you anymore. That was betrayal. This woman cheating on you was of course betrayal. And a woman because of whom you fought with some other boy. This also was betrayal because women always cause fights. Oh, so this, this, you know, we had this really strange incident where this boy said that I, uh, my girlfriend wanted to have a physical, like have sex with me. And I said, no, because I thought, what if she doesn't get married to me? What will her husband think if she doesn't get married to me? So he has this strange sense of loyalty to the future possible husband of his girlfriend. And he's mm-hmm. trying to, you know, save this girl's morality and moral image uh, because of which obviously she dumped him because she wanted to have fun with somebody. Uh, and that's also betrayal. So men have such a huge uh, sort of mounting sense of what all they have to be responsible for. And it sort of gets expressed in these strange and often conflicting ways. And that's where this space to talk about feelings. What do you feel when you are betrayed? Uh, what kind of bad behavior do you allow yourself to do when you are feeling rejected? That is really at the heart of this conversation about uh, violence in intimate relationships mm-hmm. or violence against women in the context of right. young people's right. uh, you know, relationships. I think that's a very powerful example because it is a sense of betrayal that then uh, leads to vengeance and revenge and stalking and acid attacks yeah. and just about yes. everything else. So how do you work with them? Do you remember any individuals, uh, any guys that you worked with and how you unraveled mm-hmm. and moved them from where they are in terms of uh, assigning the blame to women and mm-hmm. not taking any responsibility for what's happening mm-hmm. or not understanding? Right. Sure. Uh, I think it's definitely a long process. So it doesn't happen. It wouldn't happen in one workshop or one kind of interaction Mm -hmm. or even one year. I remember after running a very intensive kind of program for a year with just about 15 boys, at the end of it, when I didn't see like the needle completely shifting and they were still kind of confused about masculinity and uh, blame around women and violence, I felt very disheartened. But somebody else who was a more senior activist told me that, you know, it has taken you about 15 years of starting in college and learning and working to come to the kind of uh, perspective that you have. So you have to give it time. It won't happen overnight uh, for these boys as well. I think for us, we've done this, we partnered with uh, this great group called Agents of Ish Paramita, I think. Paramita Vora, we've had her on the podcast. We had a great workshop, which was a sensory metaphors workshop, which really was about making men uncomfortable by forcing them to talk about uh, feelings by uh, creating situations where they just had to 
explore their senses and talk about what they are feeling and experiencing, which is so new for many of these boys, and they were so resistant to it uh, that it was interesting to be in that room through that workshop. I think that was one part of it. The other was this, uh, you know, slowly kind of allowing a lot of these men to uh, really make stories out of the experiences that they have had. So create their own small podcasts. You know, I think the first level is when you're having this kind of reflective conversation amongst yourself. When you then have to go, I think, and men in these intervention modes are also so used to continuously just being exhorted to action. That, you know, okay, now I want to go and save women. Now I want to go and do something. <laughs> to keep men in reflection. I think has been our strategy to say, can you continuously just reflect? And I think we are also sometimes very quick to shift gears into saying, okay, we need to just reject violence against women. We need to think of gender and violence. Whereas I think this whole thing of violence against women comes from men being schooled into violence in general from a very early age. I think caste is a huge part of it. This, you know, violent response to being soldiers for the nation, being soldiers for everything pretty much. Even when it comes to saving women, you have to be soldiers and save women violently. Uh, what we realized in all of these, what I have realized in a lot of these conversations with men is that from a really early age, as early as age five, they are being taught that you have to just save. You have to, uh, you know, your material and your women, TV or Mary Bidi. <laughs> you know, these two things, you have to save these things violently. Uh, so it links to the uh, to men's protector role, right? Yes. You've got to protect uh, your property and your and your wife or your women or your family. Absolutely. And I think key for us has been to, to create a larger reflection on rejecting violence, rejecting masculinity as violence, whether it is violence on the basis of uh, caste, uh, community, religion, whatever it is. Once men start rejecting violence, that will have an automatic impact on men's rejection of violence against women. We've also realized you can't take one of these things separately. Right, has to right, right. It all hangs together. But how do you do that, actually? How do you persuade a man that violence is not the way? Because this is goes very deep, as you said, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's what they've seen or what they've been trained or what they think is expected out of them. So how do you actually go mm -hmm. about shifting that? Mm -hmm. I uh, sort of approach it by saying that, you know, what is masculinity? This is the uh, key thing of our program. What do they say? What kinds of things do they say? A lot of men just, you know, we have this poster saying, kya hai in Hindi? what is masculinity in Hindi? And uh, we put it up in a college and so many men came in expecting that, you know, please just teach us. What is masculinity? So we can do it well. We can do it better. And this pressure to just perform machoism well is so huge that, uh, you know, they think it's an automatically, it's a fixed thing. It's a fixed given that you have to learn and perform. And the way to change that actually, and, and this fixed thing is naturally violent. It is naturally in this protector mode. So we are trying to shift men's thinking of masculinity as something that is fixed to something that actually is constructed by many influences around them. And I think uh, for us, through all of these workshops, conversations, it's actually a process of, you know, going back into their own childhood, like I said uh, about my own. Saying, uh, where uh, did you learn what your gender is? When you first learned that you are a boy and that is different from being another different gender, what happened? What were you told? And, uh, you know, experiences range from being told, uh, don't uh, get beaten up and come back home, to don't cry, to you have to be tall, to you have to be a protector. There was a boy who said at five years old, he was supposed to go and accompany his 18-year-old cousin sister to, to the bus stop because it was unsafe for her. 
And so, uh, you know, going back into those same kinds of memories and really exhorting men to think about, uh, reflect on when did they learn this attitude, where they learned it from, who really pushed it for them. That sort of unravels for a lot of boys uh, the fact that this is not something that is given. It is being taught to me by different, by media, by my family, by my friends, by my teachers. And therefore, uh, when I go forward from here, I can actually make a different choice. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it's in the way men make these choices to try and reflect. So, so the needle we're trying to push is to get them to really thinking this is constructed and that I could construct it differently. Mm -hmm. That's uh, for us the key to changing how men behave and perform this masculinity. Beautiful. You've been running some men's groups or men's circles. Can you talk a little bit about that? And what, what has been happening again? What are the issues and what are the changes? How old are the boys? Mm -hmm. So uh, we've been running some kind of circles and conversations with men in our programs. We also run large scale, uh, like I said, when I say comprehensive sexuality education programs, they're not just necessarily about sex and body. They take a whole range of things. Like it's an organized intervention that talks about gender, society, patriarchy, yourself, a lot of that. And uh, we start from as early as age nine. And then going into, uh, you know, 26, 27, 30 year old men. So do you men. go into yeah. school? So how do you connect with yes. young boys? You go into schools? Yeah. So we yeah. both uh, implementing in schools as well as out of schools in communities where we create community groups. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times we train young men from that community and that context itself to become the facilitators of this conversation with younger adolescents or men. And I think uh, what we've also realized is that, uh, A, of course, like everybody says, uh, opinions hard kind of stances are less formed uh, when yeah. they are early yeah. age and so good to intervene there and they also connect much more with somebody who's near about their age they can sure. up to aspire to be and I think creating that alternative role model of a positive kind of masculinity of a more gentle kind of masculinity unlike what they see otherwise in the media uh, is has a huge influence also on how younger adolescents then start modeling masculinity right. themselves. What is what is the most common resistance or even backlash? Do you experience mm -hmm. backlash and what does that look like and how do you deal with it? Mm -hmm. uh, there are two kinds, actually. We ran a close, intimate kind of intervention with just 15 men uh, for a year, about a year and a half. And it was so hard in the initial stages to get those men to be vulnerable in front of each other. It was really hard for the moment one of them started actually opening up, somebody would crack a joke. Or there would be this huge sense of masculine competition in the room that if you have this story, I have a better story. <laughs> uh, and I think, uh, you know, men are not. And unfortunately, the rewards of competition in the world are very real. You compete for everything, for education, for jobs, for uh, income earning, for everything. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that's what men learn from a very early age, that you have to compete and win. And I think to get that sense of, you know, being better, one-upping somebody else who's in the room is the biggest resistance that we face from men, uh, particularly around getting emotional. And I, I've realized that uh, when, uh, uh, you know, there's a mixed group, uh, what is very interesting is in a mixed group, a lot of men much more easily take their cues from women in being more emotional, in being, because women are also schooled into that. Mm -hmm. They find it easier because that's the expectation from girls and women. But men take that cue very easily. So it's not like men in their own self don't want to or can't be emotional or can't be vulnerable. Uh, those role models don't exist. Right. Uh, and that sense of competition has to be lowered. 
Right. I think that right. has become key. Creating that space right. for intervention has been key to the way we work. Right, right. What are men's stereotypes about men? And then I'd love to get to what are men's stereotypes about women? You know, because our work is so much on issues of sex and sexuality, and that's where we see the largest sense of misinformation and stereotypes that creates so much consciousness and self-image issues for men. And we also realize that when it comes to conversations about sex, specifically, the boys who are not sexually active at all are the ones who have the largest kind of misconception and talk the most. So uh, <laughs> when we were doing the study uh, on men and masculinity, and we talked about masculinity and sexuality, this whole sense of, you know, how men must perform for hours uh, yes. and men must be able to satisfy their partners. And this stereotype, both about men and about women, that men are done, like, you know, women start enjoying pleasure only once, you know, men are done for two hours. Only after that, women start experiencing pleasure. And this all came from boys who knew nothing and had done nothing uh, in their own lives. And when we did this scoping study in Rajasthan, we realized that health interventions were reaching out to boys. The biggest demand amongst boys in a semi-urban rural Rajasthan was for a local version of Viagra and for emergency contraceptives because men are learning a lot of behaviors around sexuality from pornography and uh, I don't have a moral issue with watching porn but when that becomes your primary source of information and for learning about yourself that's a problem because nobody else is giving you this information in a more systematic and organized way and I think that's where we've seen the most kind of stereotypes of how men must uh, you know, be sexually dominant, must be in control all the time, must not, uh, you know, uh, be seen as vulnerable. Those are the top ones that men have around other men, that men are cool only if they're able to do all of this. And uh, around women, it's around, like I said, the sense of betrayal, that women are betrayal. always out to, you know, take you for a ride. Uh, you know, so especially for men who are just beginning to explore relationships. And it took, uh, you know, and it's so uh, strange that, Uh, we have to go and inform men that relationships and sexuality can be a happy, healthy, perfectly pleasurable experience for everybody. Where do you think this comes from? These attitudes or these stereotypes about women? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think unfortunate as it is, uh, uh, I have a strong sense that uh, everything I do in a uh, two-day, three-day workshop can be undone in one Bollywood film (laughs) immediately. Uh, Because the influence of this kind of media is huge. I also think now with, uh, so it's very interesting that now with social media, uh, TikTok and now Instagram, where men are just performing so many different uh, gender uh, roles uh, just as jokes has made, uh, you know, I think a huge change, like men who are dressing up as children and doing some kind of alternative performance or boys who are dressing up as women or queer people whose Instagram is going viral amongst even just straight, otherwise, uh, you know, stereotypical Mm -hmm. men. Social media is now allowing for much more diverse expressions of masculinity and making them more legitimate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I think uh, that is great. I think what uh, WhatsApp uh, and this whole need for men, the other stereotype that men have is I have to prove my masculinity by being the bearer of information. So we realized in the study that men are lapping up information that comes to them on WhatsApp, whether it is wrong or right, as uh, you know, I am going to be considered important and cool only if I have all the information. Yeah. And so I think our interventions need to penetrate the WhatsApp family group. True. So true. Finally, before you leave, why are so many men afraid of feminism? 
we've realized actually that we put out this we put out this video from my where we talked about toxic masculinity right and uh, we realized that the way men are taught masculinity where how men and boys learn about being macho and masculine the kind of conversation that happens about feminism and masculinity in general in mainstream spaces uh, has no room for nuance so the moment we mentioned this word toxic masculinity so many men wrote us these angry messages saying how can you call masculinity toxic and we had to break it down for them saying we are not calling masculinity toxic we are calling certain aspects of masculinity toxic and actually saying that men should be better than this and make masculinity you know make the other aspects of masculinity much more popular and uh, there this kind of unnuanced conversation and lack of understanding about feminism and about and and coupled with this uh, misconception or just this stereotype about how women are uh i think that is where this fear of feminism comes from and i feel this you know this whole i am a humanist and not a feminist just completely unnuanced uh, stupid kind of uh, you know articulations even by popular people or or women even who are influential is is doing a lot of damage uh where for me growing up i really thought of feminism as the most logical way feminism as the most logical way of thinking about equality in the world uh and not just among genders and i think that is something we can bring to a large number of men uh that's my feminist enterprise as a man right so that's a wonderful place to end with your definition of feminism how do you practice feminism and what does it mean to you what i wouldn't take on the uh, mantle of bringing uh, giving it a definition but i think some aspects of feminism that are fundamentally important for me is i think in openness and learning i think the feminist movement has been so uh, open and reflective about its own shortcomings and i think uh, feminism to me has taught that the moment you become the mainstream the moment you become the authority you must start questioning that space so whatever becomes the mainstream must start questioning whether it is inclusive and i think that has been the bedrock of feminist movements and the way it has grown that they have grown over a period of time to say that you know the moment you have become uh, the established norm you need to reflect further on whether you are actually inclusive or not and i think that openness to reflect and to continuously question and push uh this kind of equality on various different axes whether it is caste class religion gender sexuality i think that uh to me is the bedrock of feminism and that's what i try and practice and keep learning from yeah. from other activists that's a beautiful also. explanation of feminism as you practice it that we we all as we become mainstream we are all endangered because the moment you become the norm you the danger is leaving lots of people behind and excluding a lot of people on a new set of criteria thank you so much and i wish you all the best in your amazing work it's so important and so needed thank you so much thank you for having me and for this great conversation thanks manak This is Deepa Narayan. Join me in slow conversation. Listen deeply. Share your stories with others and us. Do subscribe to our channel on Hubhopper, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, or wherever you are currently listening. Our website is whatsaman.com. You can reach Dr. Deepa Narayan at deepa vop on Twitter and Instagram. 
This podcast is generously supported by a grant from the American Center New Delhi. The opinions, findings and conclusions stated are those of what's a man, masculinity in India and do not necessarily reflect those of the United States Department of State. Our partners are Hub Hopper, the Gender Lab, who work with adolescent boys and girls on gender awareness, Chup Circles, safe spaces for conversation and Youth Ki Awaaz, the largest online platform for youth voices.